0: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I will be speaking with Professor Jeffrey Weidlinger about his new book, In the Midst of Civilized Europe, The Pogroms of 1918 through 1921 and the Onset of the Holocaust. Dr. Weidlinger is a professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. His books, which include the Moscow State Yiddish Theater and In the Shadow of the Shtetl, have won numerous awards. This special edition podcast was produced in conjunction with the Joan and Alan Bergenau Jewish Community Center of Staten Island and the Esther Gushman Center for Arts and Culture. We thank them for their support for this program. Dr. Weidlinger, welcome to That Said.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Michael, and uh, pleasure talking to you. So, Jeffrey, I like to start
0: these discussions always with having the author tell us something about themselves. Where were they raised and how did they come to this academic area of study?
1: Uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada. Uh, the son of a Holocaust survivor and uh my fa- my father survived the Holocaust in Budapest and my mother's family came over right before she was born, came over to Canada. Uh, right before she was born, uh, her father was the rabbi of Halifax and was one of the people who was welcoming immigrants as they came, uh, as they came into Canada, Halifax being the main point of entry for most immigrants at the time into Canada. So I think I developed an interest in the Holocaust at an early age. Um, I attended an elementary school in Toronto, Canada. Um, Bialik Hebrew Day School, in which we had our mornings in English with about an hour of French every day, and our afternoons in Hebrew with an hour of Yiddish. Uh, So I learned some Yiddish through that. And when I was in graduate school studying Russian history, um, I discovered that I could read Yiddish. Um, And it was kind of fun to go back and look at some documents and see that I was able to read them. And that got me interested in Jewish history and in looking at the experience of Jews in the Soviet Union. So the first book I wrote was on Yiddish theater in the Soviet Union uh, under Stalin. And what prompted you to write this book? Uh, So I've done, this is my, I guess my fourth book. And my third book was based on a series of oral history interviews that I had done in Ukraine with a colleague of mine by the name of Dovber Kurler, And we spent about 10 years over the summer traveling through Ukraine looking for elderly Yiddish speakers to interview about their experiences and how they survived the Holocaust, how they survived communism, what they saw as the future of Yiddish. It was predominantly a linguistic experiment. My colleagues were trying to trace how the dialect changes from town to town, but I was hearing incredible stories from people who had who had lived there for their entire lives. And we think of most people as having left the shtetl. Um, the shtetl is always something people are moving out of, from the shtetl to suburbia, or from the shtetl to Moscow, or from the shtetl to Hollywood, um, wherever they end up going. And these are people who stayed in the shtetl, who stayed in the small towns of Ukraine. And I was hearing remarkable stories from them. And I was struck by how many of them talked about the pogroms of the Russian civil war. Uh, the pogroms that took place between 1918 and 1921. And that's what my book is about. I didn't really know that about a hundred thousand Jews had been killed between 1918 and 1921 in Ukraine in the very same places in which the Holocaust began, in which the first mass murders of the Holocaust took place. And I started to think about those connections, um, connections that the people we interviewed openly spoke about, uh, and to see that perhaps these pogroms, again, in which a 100,000 people were killed in about a 1,000 separate incidents in 500 different locales, uh, may have played a role in setting the ground, setting the stage for the Holocaust a mere 20 years later.
0: And this project, this Ahem oral history project, Ahem meaning homeward in yes, Yiddish? Yes, Ahem,
1: ahem, ahem. Yeah, which means homeward in Yiddish and we like that as an acronym for the name which is the Archives of Historical and Ethnographic Yiddish Memories and we collected in the end about 800 hours of interviews with yiddish speakers making it really one of the largest archives of yiddish speech around and it's all available on the internet at uh, www.aheym.com it is a website that has curated segments of interviews and then we also have the entire uh, you can from that website, you can link to the entire corpus of interviews that we conducted. Uh, and there is I think we went to about 50 different towns and interviewed people.
0: Tell us about the title of the book. How did you come to choose in the midst of civilized Europe? I know there's that a quote that you talk from Anatoly, France. So maybe you could talk us through that
1: title. Yeah, so the quote, the line comes from Anatole France, who was the very famous uh, uh, French writer and supporter of the, of uh, Jews. And he was very prominent in speaking out against the pogroms that were taking place during this period. And he said, how is it possible that in the midst of civilized Europe, these atrocities are taking place? And I liked that phrase because what he means by that is it's really a time of great hope. These pogroms take place predominantly in 1919, which is right after World War I finishes. And they take place at a time that the world leaders are meeting in Versailles and in Paris to talk about establishing a bold new world. You know, what H.G. Wells called the war that will end all wars. He imagined World War I would be. And they thought they were, it was a new beginning and they thought that this was, they were ushering in a brand new era of peace in Europe and that in the midst of this, these pogroms were taking place uh, to the east. So I like that title for that reason. It also, you know, these pogroms took place in Ukraine, and Ukraine was also widely regarded at the time as one of the most progressive countries in Europe. Uh, certainly in its treatment of Jews, Ukraine was the first country to grant the Jews full autonomy as a national group, uh, the Ukrainian government, when it was, uh, when the Ukrainian state was established, uh, elevated Yiddish to the status of one of the national languages. They printed currency in Yiddish. They established a ministry of Jewish affairs that was responsible for Jewish schooling, for overseeing Jewish schooling. Uh, you could go to court in Yiddish, ideally. Um, but all this fell apart very quickly. Uh, but it had the goal of establishing really the first multinational, multicultural, Uh,
0: In fact, I think you have, on one of the podcasts that I looked at, you showed the currency of Ukraine. Tell us about that a little.
1: Yeah, so they even printed, you know, in 1918, the government of Ukraine printed its own currency. And on one side of it, it was in Ukrainian. And on the other side, they printed in Polish in Russian and in Yiddish characters. And I think, as far as I know, that may very well have been the very first time that Yiddish ever appeared on an official state currency, and that was Ukraine 1918. So I think this all fell apart again, but I think we forget how progressive Ukraine was. And in many ways, the Ukrainian government was promoting this idea of multiculturalism and multinationalism, of recognizing the status of different peoples within the country. Um, It was a country that formed in 1918, this is the original Ukrainian state, that formed in the aftermath of the collapse of empires all around it. So the Russian Empire had collapsed, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, the German Empire collapsed. And in the midst of this, all of these new states started to vie for existence. So in Poland, a new state was declared. In Romania, a state was declared. um, There were different states being established in the wake of the collapse of the, uh, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the Polish state strove to be a, uh, ethno-national state to concentrate as many Poles as possible within the borders. Whereas the Ukrainian state chose to be expansive and included large numbers of Romanians, of Hungarians, of, uh, of Jews, of Poles, of Germans, of Russians, um, all living within the same state structure. And so, what went wrong,
0: Jeffrey? I mean, here's this ambitious goal to have a state with widespread Jewish autonomy and egalitarianism, and it failed quickly, it seems.
1: Yeah, well, this may sound familiar to listeners today and viewers today, but it was invaded. Um, it was invaded from multiple directions. It was invaded from the West by the Polish state, it was invaded from the East by the Bolsheviks, by the Red Army, uh, which was trying to establish another type of multinational state. And it was invaded from the south by the so-called White Army, which was an army that wanted to reestablish parts of the Russian Empire. Uh, so two invasions, basically, from Russian territory and one from, one from Polish territory. And uh, that just tore the state apart.
0: What's interesting to me, I mean, there are a lot of things that are interesting. The the whole book is interesting. But what's interesting to me as I was reading it was just how uninformed I was about the pogroms of 1918 to 21. And you document well how really over a 100,000 Jews were murdered in Ukraine during this time. And that history is fairly unknown. We all know of the Holocaust, of course, but the pogroms are much less known. Were they unknown contemporaneously with this going on?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And I wondered that myself when I was hearing these Ukrainian, uh, these Jewish uh, people in Ukraine that we were interviewing. When I was hearing them talk about it, I was wondering what people knew at the time. Uh, And when I went and looked, I saw not only did people know at the time, but in many ways, it seems it's all anybody was talking about in the interwar period. And if you read Jewish sources from the period between 1920 and 1933, in many ways, it seems that all they are talking about is the pogroms and the possibility of more pogroms taking place in Eastern Europe. And in fact, I opened the book with an article that appeared in the New York Times in September 1919. And the article is uh, about the pogroms in Ukraine and Poland. And it says 127,000 Jews have been killed. Um, that's an overstatement at the time. And the article concludes by saying, unless dra- drast- drastic action is taken immediately, 6 million Jews in Poland and Ukraine are slated for physical extermination. Uh, they recognized that the physical extermination of Jews in Poland and Ukraine was a possibility. And they recognized it because they had seen genocidal violence perpetrated against Jews in these very same territories. And they recognized that it wasn't over, that this violence had been stopped, a pause had been put to it, but... The root of the violence still remained. Property hadn't been restored. There were still local animosities. The perpetrators hadn't been punished. They recognized that it was still a very volatile situation and feared, correctly, that another round of violence would soon break out.
0: Beyond the New York Times, I think you would cite in the book an editorial, which I'd like you to talk about, too, which is from The Nation, similarly.
1: Um yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the nation in 1921 did a whole full page or I think multiple page article um, on the pogroms of Ukraine, and they called the article the murder of a race. This was as though they're searching for the term genocide that had not yet been invented. That term wouldn't come into uh, into use until Raphael Lemkin coined it in 1944. But they're searching for that term. They recognize that what took place was, in fact, the murder of a nation, the murder of a race. Uh, So I found, yeah, I found that also to be very alarming and noteworthy. Uh, We, of course, have forgotten about it now. We've forgotten that because the Holocaust did happen. What they predicted, the destruction of Eastern European Jews, did take place. And because of the sheer extent of the Holocaust, it really just overshadowed this other wave of violence that took place 20 years earlier. Uh, And I think that that's been a mistake. I think that we really do need to be aware of it because it shows us that there were early warning signs and makes us aware today when there are other genocidal acts taking place that they may very well be early warning signs of larger genocides to come. Yeah, and we'll talk
0: about that in a little bit. But I'd like to talk a little bit. First, let's define terms. Tell us what a pogrom is definitionally, and then who were the perpetrators of these pogroms? Because it wasn't one actor. There were multiple sort of coh- cohorts of actors.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, the word pogrom first comes into usage in the English language in the 1880s as a response to pogroms in 1881. And it means riots against Jews, is how it's defined when it first comes into use. And it's imagined that they are local riots, really almost what we would call in the West or in America, what we could call race riots. Um, but they're it imagined as people with pitchforks going against Jews, rounding up Jews, breaking into their stores and assaulting them. And that's actually true. That is what a pogrom is. But a pogrom is also a military action. But I don't think we recognized uh, before quite the extent to which a pogrom is a military action as well of an army coming through town, rounding up Jews and killing them. Uh, so essentially, a pogrom can be any type of violence, of mass violence against Jews. And the word comes from the Russian gromit, uh, which is to plunder uh, and uh, enter the English language through that.
0: And you, you categorized the perpetrators in three groups, essentially the peasants, ordinary townspeople, and then the soldiers who you say blame the Jews for the turmoil of World War One and the Russian Revolution. So tell us, you said that they were also, Ukraine is invaded by, from three points. So who was committing these things most? I know we have Poles, Ukrainian nationalists, Russian imperial state actors. Tell us about each of them, and and then we can talk about what gave rise to them, what economic and other conditions gave rise to the pogroms.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so pogroms were perpetrated by all sides in this conflict, and then some. And the types of pogroms varied immensely. So some of these, I said earlier, there were about a thousand separate pogroms in about 500 different locales. Some of them were local toughs from the countryside invading the towns. They can be viewed as countryside versus uh, city violence. And in Ukraine, Jews tended to be concentrated in the cities and Christians tended to be the peasants living out of the cities. So a lot of it was that, was that type of violence, you know, and that is the people with pitchforks, so to speak. Um, and then others were, again, perpetrated by militaries. And the militaries could be any military unit, all the sides in the conflict equally were united in hating the Jews. Um, and I write the Poles, for instance, who were declaring their own independent state, hated the Jews or suspected the Jews of siding with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians suspected the Jews of siding with the Poles. The Russians feared that the Jews were trading secrets to the Germans. The Germans thought that the Jews were spying on them for the Russians. The Bolsheviks, initially at least, attacked the Jews because they regarded the Jews as the major capitalists. The Jews were the merchants. They were the store owners. And at the same time, every group attacked the Jews because they thought of the Jews as the Bolsheviks. So the fact of the matter is, there were Jews on all sides of the conflict. The Jewish community of Ukraine was divided, and different people had different allegiances. And each side... Would see one person who was Jewish siding with another group and would assume that all the Jews were on that side, and always assume that the Jews were on the other side. Um, it's interesting, you know, in lore, many of those who know of the whites, who have heard of the whites, may think of them as the most ardent anti Semites. And in fact, that's often how they're written about. This is the former Tsarist army, uh the Cossacks, uh, who were in the former Tsarist army, who were horse. Uh, cavalry units that were fighting for the Tsarist army. Um, and they perpetrated some of the worst pogroms. But there were also many Jews who sided with them, who believed that the Russian army, the former Tsarist army, was the only unit that was capable of bringing peace, that was capable of restoring law and order. So really, there were Jews on all sides of the conflict, meaning no matter what side you were on, there was a Jew to blame.
0: It's the Tom Lehrer's, national, yeah. that, that song, National Brotherhood Week.
1: Yeah, the exactly. Hate yeah. The,
0: you know, I mean, everyone hates the, the Jews, sadly, mm-hmm. sadly so. But talk a little bit more about the fear of Bolshevism and Trotsky, who himself was born Jewish in Ukraine. And because Bolshevism and fear of Bolshevism sort of features prominently in your narrative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what ends up happening? is, as I said, some of the first pogroms were perpetrated by the Red Army um, against Jews they accused of being capitalists. But at a certain point in time, in late 1918, early 1919, the Red Army starts to crack down on pogrom perpetrators. And the Red Army, the Bolsheviks, start educating their soldiers about the Jews and saying to their soldiers, the Jews are our friends, we can't attack the Jews, it damages our cause. If we turn against the Jews, we need the Jews on our side. They didn't do anything to us, not all Jews are capitalists. They start using propaganda to really stomp down on, on pogroms. As a result of which, the Jews start to see this and sympathize with the Bolsheviks. So by 1921, by the time this huge conflict, the Civil War, is ending, a lot of Jews see that the Red Army is the one unit that is able to defend them and that will defend them. So traditionally, an army would come into town and would round up all the Jews and take them to the outskirts of town and kill them. Or would take them hostage or would force them to turn over large sums of money, whatever it may be. the Bolsheviks, when they came into a town, they rounded up the Jews and they said to them, "We have saved you now come join us and help us save the Jews in the next town over as a result of which, Jews in these small towns tended to join the Bolsheviks, and this perception that Jews and Bolsheviks are one and the same um, became was enhanced, and that perception that the Jews are Bolsheviks, comes largely from the figure of Leon Trotsky. Trotsky, you know, the leader of the Russian Revolution was, of course, Vladimir Lenin. But he's there in Petrograd, hundreds of miles away. The face of the revolution, the face of the Bolshevik Revolution to the Western world and to Ukraine was Leon Trotsky. He was the commissar of foreign affairs and he was the head of the Red Army. And his portrait was everywhere. People recognized Trotsky as the head of the Bolsheviks. And Trotsky was of Jewish background, and people knew that as well. And that helped perpetuate this notion that the Bolsheviks are a Jewish party and that all Bolsheviks are Jews.
0: But Trotsky, interestingly, from a political standpoint, wouldn't tolerate the anti-Semitism one, perhaps because of his Jewish ancestry, but he thought that this kind of inter-ethnic strife would not help their political cause. He thought yeah. this was antagonistic to what they were trying to build. In yeah, their, I don't, I don't think religion. he cracked
1: it, Yeah, I don't think he cracked down on anti-Semitism because of any great love of the Jewish people. Um, he had distanced himself from the Jewish people. He didn't consider himself a Jew by any means. Um, he considered himself an internationalist. He was, you know, what the uh, historian Isaac Deutscher called a non-Jewish Jew, somebody of Jewish background who rejected their Jewishness. Uh, but he saw for tactical reasons, animosity against Jews wasn't helping the Bolshevik cause. And that's what he believed. If you believed in the Bolshevik cause um, more than anything else.
0: I want to just deviate for one second, because it's a question that, always comes to mind and what you write about speaking about this, quoting uh, the sociologist, Mark Granovetter. But tell me if you would tell us, Jeffrey, what is it that allowed this violence to be so accepted? Mm-hmm. Why, how does violence get to be so accepted? You will see that obviously in the Holocaust, but in the pogroms, how is it that it came to be that way?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's many different theories on violence, on, on how mob violence begins. And this is the Mark Granovetter one that you mentioned. Uh, I'll begin with, uh, you know, the theory that crowds, when people come into a crowd, the crowd completely changes, uh, uh, changes people's personality. The mob, you know, the idea of the mob changes personality. Freud would have said that the mob just brings out, uh, Brings out sentiments that the crowd already expresses. So it brings out the anti-Semitism of the crowd, for instance. And Granovetter said that actually anybody can join a crowd. He talks about uh, a situation in which everybody has their own point at which they would be willing to join violence. There are some people who would never throw the first stone. But once the first stone is thrown, they'll then join in and join the second stone throw the second stone and others who will only join once everybody else is looting stores. And they see that there's no cost to looting the store they will join into. And so there's this process of snowballing that takes place. And I think we see that in Ukraine. We see that process with many of these pogroms. Um, the book looks at these in great detail and looks at exactly what happened in each pogrom. And we see they usually begin with one segment of the population with ruffians um, or with rogue military units, and then ordinary people slowly join in. And once there's a situation where the ruffians have looted all of the stores, then even so-called respectable citizens of town uh, will also join in, and they'll go into the Jewish houses, the Jewish stores, and start stealing as well. Um, because they recognize that they believe that the costs of sitting it out are greater than the cost of participating,
0: mm. the pogroms create a refugee crisis of in different proportions. You have the displacement of the elites by the Bolsheviks, and then you have others who are you know your typical refugees and they tell us about the displacement tell us about the refugee crisis that followed the pogroms, because that becomes an important predicate for what goes on later in the 1940s.
1: Yeah, so the pogroms lead to a massive refugee crisis. Uh, About 50% of the Jewish population of Ukraine is dislocated as a result of the pogroms. Uh, That means they have to move. Many of them stay within the territory that becomes Ukraine, Uh, Many of them move into the Soviet, what becomes the Soviet interior. They move to Moscow. They move to St. Petersburg. But large numbers, about three to five hundred thousand flee the Soviet Union entirely. And many of them first go to Poland or to Romania and then end up in Germany. Uh, they're kicked out of Poland and Romania in 1923, um, and they end up going to Germany where there's cheap currency and where there's a relatively liberal attitude towards refugees. However, over time, the presence of all of these refugees fuels and is used by right-wing movements to stow discontent. And right-wing politicians and demagogues start to accuse these Jewish refugees of importing Bolshevism into Germany, even though these are the people who are fleeing Bolshevism. But nevertheless, they're accused of importing Bolshevism. They're accused of bringing disease to Germany. They're accused of uh, using up all of the social services. Uh, they're accused of Leading to the downfall of Germany. And the people accusing them of this are these right wing politicians like the Nazis, um, who become, you know, very prominent agitators against the refugees. And one of the arguments of the book is that we have really underestimated the role that this refugee crisis played in the rise of Nazism in the early years.
0: Well, talk us through that a bit.
1: Yeah, so just that as the, as the Jews are coming in, as large numbers of Jews are coming into Germany, um, they're being accused and they're, they're being accused of, uh, bring, spreading Bolshevism, of spreading disease, of using social services. If you look at their early Nazi newspapers, they're really concentrated on the idea of the Eastern European Jew, the Ostjuden, and they accuse the Ostjuden of all of these, uh, of all of these terrible things in Germany and of bringing about the downfall of Germany. At the same time, by the way, there are also Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian Christians who have fled uh, Bolshevism to Germany. So there's large numbers of Russian speakers living in the same quarters, in mostly in Berlin, uh, with the Ukrainians claiming that they're fleeing Jewish Bolshevism and the Jews claiming that they're fleeing Ukrainian Cossacks, and all living in very close proximity to each other. And this creates conditions that again are utilized by the right, by the extreme right in order to sow discontent and, uh, for manipulate, to manipulate the population to believe that the refugees are the source of their problems.
0: Yeah. What did Einstein
1: say of it? Um, yeah, Einstein, who is in Germany at the time, uh, comments on this at a very early stage in 1923 already. Um, he comments that the presence of all of these refugees is bound to lead to problems in the future and is bound to lead to a reaction um, against them in the future. And of course, Einstein was right. Um, he was a smart guy. As it turns out, who knew? Yeah, who knew? Yeah.
0: The thing that you talk about in the book that's interesting too, in respect of the refugees is how this led to what is called the Red Scare here in the U.S. So talk about that, too, please, Jeffrey.
1: Yeah, so it's not just Germany. I talked about Germany, but it's actually wherever Jews go, they are accused of bringing Bolshevism. And the United States is no exception. Uh, Henry Ford, who's Dearborn Independent, propagated uh, the lies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, also propagated the idea that Jews were importing Bolshevism. And it led to congressional investigations, and there were those who went before Congress to talk about the Jews as a major threat to the United States um, because of the importation of Bolshevism. Uh, so I got a dog there in the background, um, and this led to the Overman the the Overman Commission, and eventually to restrictions on Jewish immigration uh, in the United States.
0: And indeed, Henry Ford was one of the leading opponents of the Jewish refugees. Yes.
1: Right, yeah, so Henry Ford is one of the chief propagators of this myth of Judeo-Bolshevism in the United States. Um, and again, the National Origins Act of 1923 and of 1924, uh, which restricted immigration from Eastern Europe, was geared specifically against uh, against Jews and against the importation of Bolshevism, was used as one of the major uh, reasons for it.
0: And so we see, I mean, in the principal thesis of your book is how the programs were foundational in laying the groundwork for the Holocaust, that it's in some sense one continuous period. And you talked about it, but I'd like you to, because you spent a lot of time in the book explicating this, but how did the Nazis in, in, detail, in more detail capitalize on these fears that we've been talking about on broader terms?
1: Yeah, so for one, it's the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, the idea that Jews are responsible for Bolshevism, Uh, which is used by the Nazis when they return to Russia or when they invade Russia, not return, when they invade Russia in 1941, um, they bring this idea of Judeo-Bolshevism or return this idea of Judeo-Bolshevism and start telling the Ukrainians that the crimes that have been committed against them by the Bolsheviks were really Jewish crimes. And in the interim, between 1921 and 1941, in the interim uh, between the end of the Civil War and the German invasion of the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks did commit crimes against the Ukrainian people. Uh, they arrested tens of thousands of people um, during collectivization in the 1920s. And most prominently, they forced a famine in Ukraine that led to the deaths of about 3.5 million people. And Ukrainians remembered that. And the Nazis came in and told the Ukrainians that it was the Jews who were responsible for these crimes. And it fell on fertile ground. Uh, The population had already been primed to blame the Jews for Bolshevism and to make that association. So the Nazis found it a very powerful means of gaining the support of the local Ukrainian population uh, by reviving this Judeo-Bolshevik myth. So that's one connection. Yeah, go ahead. Please go on. Yes, yeah, so I think that's, that's one connection between these pogroms and the Holocaust. Another is simply that violence against Jews became normative. People became used to it. When an army came into town, it was assumed that that army is going to round up Jews and kill them. And the inconceivable becomes conceivable. People who were in their early teens during 19, during the pogroms of 1918 to 1921, are in their 30s when the Germans invade. And these are among the people who the Germans recruit to be the local auxiliary police to help them perpetrate atrocities against the Jewish population. So these now men in their 30s who are assisting the Germans remember from their childhood that they had participated in pogroms before. And their fathers may have participated in pogroms before as well. It becomes more normal, more acceptable, and isn 't as shocking as it would otherwise have been. So people become inured to this type of violence
0: and I found you used the word in the book "retaliation" that the Nazis were claiming that they were retaliating
1: mm-hmm. for the
0: for the crimes perpetrated by the Jews in the nineteen eighteen nineteen 19- 21 period, which always finds a receptive audience.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a very easy way of gaining the population support and of gaining, uh, of directing local anger against a particular group, of scapegoating a particular group. Um, This was done already during the Civil War 20 years earlier, between 1918 and 1921. You know, the Bolsheviks were promising something that was very appealing to the peasant population, They were promising land, bread, and peace. And if you're one of the old elites and you want to get the peasants on your side, how do you convince the peasants that land, bread, and peace are a bad idea not to support the party that's promising land, bread, and peace? The way you do that is by utilizing long-held anti-Jewish sentiments and saying, you know, this promise of land, bread, and peace, it's not real. It's just a ploy that the Jews are using. And because of that, they were able to gain support. And they were able to have enough people think that maybe this is, uh, maybe the Bolsheviks are just a Jewish conspiracy.
0: And so you get this Ukrainian nationalist group and German Nazis conspiring together. And, and you talk about, I'll say it wrong, probably Lviv, Lviv um, yeah. program Lviv, program, pogrom. pogrom, can you tell us about that? Because it's a good, I mean, not that yeah. it's a good example of a pogrom, but but it's a good example of what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so one of the first cities that the Germans conquer in 1941 is the city of Lviv, that you hear about a lot in the news today, actually. It is in western Ukraine, and it's one of the places to which people have been fleeing um, from eastern Ukraine. Uh, and this is one of the very first places that the Germans conquer. And when they conquer Lviv, they gather the population together and they show them uh, people who have been killed by the Soviets. They, Before the Soviets evacuated the city, they murdered the prison population. And they show them those bodies and they say, this is what the Jews have done to you. This is what the Jews are doing to our people. And now it's time for you to take revenge against them. And they instigate a pogrom. They encourage a pogrom against the Jews um, by telling the population that the Jews are to blame for the atrocities that the Soviets had committed against them.
0: I want to leave time for questions and answers. And there's one question in the Q&A that I'll ask you now, but then I want to pivot because I can't let you go without talking about what's going on in Ukraine now. But the question and the question and answer is, what about the pogroms in the period of the Fiddler on the Roof They must have been decades earlier. Can you talk about that as a perhaps predicate for the pogroms we're talking about?
1: Yeah. So the pogroms of 1918 to 1921 that I write about were not the first wave of pogroms in the area, in the region. There had been periodic atrocities committed against Jews before. The most famous ones were those that began in 1881. When Tsar Alexander II was assassinated and many Jews or many blamed the Jews for the assassination of the Tsar. And that led to a wave of pogroms also in Ukraine, uh, which was at the time called the South of Russia. And about a dozen people were killed in that spate of violence. 20 years later, during the Russian Revolution of 1905, there was another spate of pogroms. Um, between, really between 1903, the Kishinev pogrom and 1906, there were about 700 pogroms also in the south of Russia, in which a total of about three to 5,000 Jews were killed. So there's a vast escalation between 1881 and between 1903 to 1906. And then 20 years later, again, during another period of unrest that I write about, 1918 to 1921, we have these pogroms that lead to the deaths of about 100,000. And then 20 years after that, the Holocaust, uh, in which about a third of the victims of the Holocaust are killed in Ukraine. About 1.5 million people, million Jews are killed in Ukraine, um, in mostly in 1941, 1942. So every 20 years, it seems to escalate, um, by large, uh, uh by, by large jumps.
0: And in the earlier pogroms, was it also <laughs> economic conditions that gave rise to the basis for for them, or were there other factors at play as well?
1: Yeah, I think what's unique about the 1918 to 1921 pogroms, or new, I should say, in the 1918 to 1921 pogroms, is the Bolshevik accusation, uh, the accusation that Jews are Bolsheviks, and the fact that every side uh, is targeting the Jews, that there's this war going on with every side targeting the Jews. The 1881 pogroms were perpetrated by smaller groups of people, um, as were the 1903 to 1906 pogroms. Uh, they were also more religiously based. They tended to occur around Easter uh, under the allegation that Jews had killed a Christian child um, and used its blood for ritualistic purposes. Uh, blood libel was still very much alive in Russia uh, into the early 20th century, uh, whereas these pogroms become political in nature.
0: I'd like to turn if we can, unless there's another question in the Q&A on on this. No. I'd like to turn, Jeffrey, if we can, because you've written some very compelling op-eds about what's going on in Ukraine presently. And I think what one learns from reading your book is that this is an unbroken line, in a sense, of hatred. And you write that, in this is the March 1st op-ed, you write, Russian President Vladimir Putin justifies his war on Ukraine as a peacekeeping mission, a denazification of the country. Putin said the purpose was to protect people who had been subjected to bullying and genocide for the last eight years. And for this, Russia will strive for the demilitarization and the denazification of the Ukraine. The victims of the genocide claimed by Putin are Russian speakers. The Nazis he's referenced in his speech are representatives of the Ukrainian people. So can you talk us about Because so You hear a lot about this denazification of Ukraine by, by Putin. And I wondered when I heard it, what's that all about?
1: Yeah, so it is completely false. Um, there's no there's not a Nazi party in power in Ukraine. And in fact, you know, Ukraine does have a far right movement like most European and even like the United States, uh, most European countries. But it's a very marginal um, party that has a very marginal role to play in politics. Uh, in fact, Ukraine has become a democratic and pluralistic country. Uh, and that's what is a threat to Putin. Putin knows what, what Putin is right about is that Russians and Ukrainians do have a lot in common. And he knows that if democracy can work in Ukraine, it can also work in Russia. And that would lead to the end of Putinism. That would lead to the end of his power. So he's using this idea of Nazis because he recognizes that Russians think of the fight against Nazism as the most glorious battle that Russia was engaged in. And, you know, they call the Second World War the Great Patriotic War and think of the Russian victory over Nazism during the Great Patriotic War as the major achievement of the Soviet Union. And so he's trying to revive that myth in order to get the population on his side um, by making this accusation. It has no basis in reality. Uh, Zelensky is very far from a Nazi. He is, in fact, you know, a defender of democracy right now. Um, he's a Democrat who was uh, elected with a, uh, with a very wide margin. His opponents then... Stood by and gave up power willingly, uh, acceded to the election and, uh, was then on the street fighting for Zelensky, uh, in the, in the latest, uh, in the latest war. So it's a pluralistic democracy and becoming more so by the year. Uh, it's a country that has had three democratic revolutions since 1991, uh, and really, really is striving to become a part of Europe and this pluralistic democratic notion of Europe that they um, believe in. But there
0: was some hook about the speaking of Russian. What was that about?
1: Um, Yeah, they have issued laws that give precedence to the Ukrainian language over the Russian language. Uh, But, yeah, as the historian Tim Snyder, I think, has put it very well, is Russian speakers have more freedom in Ukraine than they have in Russia. For instance, if you are a Russian speaker and you want to run for president of Ukraine, As Zelensky did, you can very well become president of Ukraine. If you're a Russian speaker and you want to run for president of Russia, you're most likely to find yourself poisoned or in jail as every opponent of Putin's, um, has found themselves. So by all means, Russians have Russian speakers in Ukraine have full access to media, to Western news. Um, Russian speakers in Russia are cut off from the world and only able to hear um, to hear putin's version of truth uh there's you know no doubt about it that Russian speakers have greater freedoms in Ukraine than they do in Russia
0: in your April eighth op ed you write the evidence of atrocities committed by Russian soldiers in Ukraine are shocking and disturbing. They are also familiar, and what we must do is to ensure that the violence of today does not fester into more bloodshed of tomorrow so one What are you foretelling here, and then how do we ensure that that does not occur?
1: Yes, I think a few things that we can learn from the pogroms that I wrote about in my book are, one, that violence begets violence, that violence has to be stopped at a very early stage um, atrocities need to be stopped at an early stage or else they escalate. And so I think we need to put an end to the violence that's taking place and the atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine right now, um, and by whatever means necessary, put an end to it. Uh, two, the perpetrators need to be punished. And that means all the perpetrators, not just Putin, but also the soldiers who are perpetrating atrocities uh, should also be punished when the time comes. Three, there needs to be a proper investigation to determine what really happened. There needs to be some type of truth commission when all is said and done that will investigate and keep track of what atrocities were committed by whom, when, and where. And finally, there needs to be a process in which those who committed the atrocities are tried, but it needs to be just those who committed the atrocities we have to be very careful not to condemn an entire nation uh, for the crimes of their leaders and the crime of their military. That there are many people in Russia and in Ukraine um, who want nothing to do with this war. And we have to be careful that accusations and collective punishment doesn't sow the seeds for another round of violence uh in the next generation. Mm.
0: The question in the Q&A, which you've sort of answered, but, I guess because it's been asked, I'll ask it again, and maybe you can just elaborate a bit. It says, why do you believe Putin actually invaded Ukraine? Is it mostly this fear of democracy that's at play? What explains it?
1: Yeah, I think that is the most important factor, is this fear of democracy. Um, the recognition that democracy is a very powerful force and can spread easily. Um, he sees that it's working in Ukraine. Zelensky's government has been pretty successful and pretty popular in Ukraine. And recognizing that possibility and that that could happen to Russia as well, if it happens in Ukraine, it can happen to Russia, he sees his power and his hold over the country threatened. Um, I think that's his motivation for invading.
0: And how is it playing in Russia? How, I mean... It's not there's no free press there. How is the war being told to the average Russian? How is it being processed?
1: It's being told as a war against Nazisms and you, Nazis, and you can still see this in the Russian press. I try to read the Russian press on a fairly regular basis and can still see they talk about um, they talk about Nazis and fascists being defeated in Ukraine. Uh, they also talk about their own victories and have not fully recognized or have not fully admitted the failures that the Russian military has been experiencing in Ukraine. Um, as a result of which Russians just aren't getting their, the real news. They're getting, they're getting real fake news. Uh, and so it's hard to know what Russians are actually believing because we don't have proper opinion polls. Um, but I think a fair amount are believing what they read on the news. Uh, you know, in the United States, we actually have a free press and we still have about half the country believing fake news. Uh, they have access to both sides. So you can imagine if they only have access to one side, if the, they only have access to fake news, it's going to perpetuate uh, that narrative.
0: So how do you see it coming to an end? What if you have a sort of crystal ball, what are you seeing? The tough question
1: I, there's not an easy, uh, ramp out for Putin. Uh, I don't know how he saves space in this war. Uh, I think he needs to be absolutely defeated, uh, whatever that means. And we need, and the West needs to continue to support Ukraine and to ensure that it leads to, uh, to a full defeat of Putin, not of Russia, but of Putin and of everything he represents.
0: Not easily accomplished, I don't think, unless you're going to put boots on the ground.
1: No, I don't see it as an easy solution. I don't see easy solutions.
0: The book, I thought that the the point that I learned most tellingly was the Holocaust did not come out of nowhere, and that the Jews of Western Europe had a different sort of understanding of the rise of Nazism than the Jews of Eastern Europe because of lived experiences.
1: Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so I often talk about that. You know, I grew up, as I said, the son of a Holocaust survivor, and my father often talked about the Holocaust as though it came out of the blue. He talked about his childhood in Budapest, and he had what he would consider a normal childhood in Budapest. Um, The family would take vacations to Lake Balaton, and would go on ski vacations to the Alps, and he took fencing lessons and attended synagogue, until suddenly, out of the blue, the Germans invaded Hungary and his world changed. And that's the way the story of the Holocaust is often presented. It's the way Anne Frank's diary tells the Holocaust. Uh, it's the way Elie Wiesel tells the Holocaust, that it came out of the blue. It was unexpected, and suddenly things change on a dime. And that's true. That is a correct narrative for these people and for much of the world. But in Ukraine, as well as in Belarus and in other territories that had been subject to pogroms in 1919, 1921, the Holocaust didn't come out of the blue, but was part of a landscape of violence that was still a carryover from 20 years earlier. Uh, And I think we need to remember that. I think we need to remember that this so-called era of peace between the two world wars wasn't all that peaceful for people living in Ukraine and Belarus. And it's precisely in those areas that the first mass murders of the Holocaust took place. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the legacy of that violence 20 years later was still playing a role uh, when the Holocaust began. So we're
0: just about out of time, Jeffrey, and I always like to give the author sort of a closing statement uh, based on what I didn't ask and what lessons we should take from your book that you think are most important for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important lesson is precisely that violence begets violence, that when violence begins, it needs to be stopped immediately. And we can't allow it to continue. We can't allow it to escalate. Uh, this applies to Ukraine in 1918, and it applies to Ukraine right now. Uh, whatever it takes, I think that the legacies of violence continue uh, for generations. Um, as I said at the very beginning, you know, I became interested in this when I started interviewing Yiddish speakers about their experiences. And they talked about their experiences with this violence 80 years after it took place. Um, one can only imagine 20 years after uh, the impact that it has. So violence has a post-history. And really, this type of atrocity needs to be ended um, as soon as possible and through whatever means possible.
0: The book is called In the Midst of Civilized
1: Europe, The Pogroms
0: of 1918 through 1921 and the Onset of the Holocaust. It's an important read. And I thank you very much for being with us today on That Said with Michael Zeldin. And thank you, Michael. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at, that said at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.